Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. In this podcast, I thought we'd have a bit of a look at the politics of defence, both in Australia and also in the United States, especially as they pertain to AUKUS. The reason for that is that we're in the lead-up to the ALP National Conference, which takes place between August the 17th and the 19th. And in the United States, the Republican Party is about to formally start the process of selecting their candidate for the 2024 presidential election. But to set the scene, some things that have occurred just in the last few days. Uh, there was good reporting recently from the ABC that uh, RAF base Darwin is going to be expanded to include the United States Air Force Mission Planning Center. And that follows on from work that the ABC did last year about uh, 6B-52s will be based at RAF base Tyndall. Coming out of uh, Osman, there was also news that there will now be a combined intelligence centre within the Australian Defence Intelligence Organisation, combined Australian-US, that is. And of course, in the background, we've got the rotation starting soon-ish of nuclear-powered submarines, mainly from the US, but also British, plus the long-standing Marine Force Darwin rotation deployment. When you put all of those things together... The US presence in Australia is being ramped up and ramped up very steadily. Now, from the US perspective, one can understand why it makes China's targeting problems a lot more difficult. The more military facilities there are in the region, the bigger the headache is for an adversary rather than just having to worry about tackling Okinawa and Guam and Hawaii that Chinese now have to potentially allocate resources, you know, typically missiles, but it might be other things, to now factor in HMAS Sterling, RAF Base Tyndall, RAF Base Darwin, and if it ever gets built, the East Coast nuclear-powered submarine facility, which will be a major, major target. One would assume that to justify this ramp-up, the intelligence assessments that Australia is receiving about threats, well, particularly the threat from China, must be truly alarming. If they weren't alarming, why are we doing these sorts of things? Now, there's a certain logic to this, so I hope you're following it. Presumably, the assessments are, we've got to get the Americans more heavily engaged here because that's a way of counteracting the threat that we face. Okay. If we all accept that, why is it that rather than Australian defence expenditure increasing in the next three years, it's actually being reduced? There's such a clear and obvious contradiction about what is going on, but it really doesn't seem to be entering into the public consciousness. Now, personally, I'm sufficiently concerned about the situation in the region that I can see the need to go to 2.5% of GDP or whatever it happens to be. It doesn't need to be a specific number. But if we're talking in terms of capability, I think a good case can be made for things like immediately ordering three squadrons of Predator-B armed drones. Now, that was on track under Air 7003 until it was mysteriously scrapped. We still don't know why. 
I'd put into the mix an extra squadron or two of F-35s, the Chunmu multiple rocket launch system from South Korea. Okay, we've got HIMARS on order from the United States, Army people, it's all HIMARS, HIMARS, HIMARS. As I've explained previously, there are going to be delays getting hold of that. Myself, I'd be going for an interim solution and getting it here as quickly as possible. And as I mentioned last week, when we were talking about heavily armed corvettes, again, I think a case can be made for that in terms of getting very rapid capability. What the dollar figure for that might be in the overall scheme of things, I don't know. But if strategic circumstances are deteriorating so rapidly that we're ramping up the US presence, then why aren't we doing more about it? ourselves. Turning to Australian domestic politics, Richard Miles appears to be losing support within the ALP because he is giving the impression that he is giving the US whatever they want with no consideration of Australian interests. I don't know whether that's true or not, whether the facts are true or not, and I'm simply recording the impression that people are receiving that's the case. I'm also talking about the ALP generally, I'm not talking about the parliamentary wing of the ALP. I mean, the factions have all of that stitched up. As far as I'm aware, no particular minister is under any threat. It's only, you know, it's less than 18 months since Labour returned to government. I'm not seeing any signs of instability within the ministry. What I'm doing is recording, if you like, my impressions of what the rank and file members of the ALP are feeling. And I think that's going to be relevant for the the national conference that's that's coming up shortly. Now, as well as the defence minister losing support, I observe that we also have basically two part-time ministers responsible. Richard Niles prefers the title of deputy prime minister, so clearly that's a higher priority for him than the defence portfolio. And Patrick Conroy is also the Minister for International Development and the Pacific and has the further disadvantage that he isn't in Cabinet. So one really has to question how much of a grip the government has on the whole very large defence portfolio with a whole lot of problems in various areas to do with programme management, trying to find internal savings, all of that sort of stuff. In the past, I and a number of other journalists and industry figures have complained about the culture of secrecy that now totally infects defence. For the record, I have to say, for people who are not in the Canberra bubble, it's not just defence. There are a number of government agencies that are in real trouble at the moment. Human services with robo-debt, people might be familiar with that. Departments of Home Affairs, a number of view, reviews into home affairs have concluded that it's not fit for purpose. It was cobbled together to pander to the ambitions of Peter Dutton during the days of the Turnbull Prime Ministership, and it was meant to mimic the US Department of Homeland Security, an enormously powerful institution. It's not working. It needs to be dismantled with the intelligence agencies going back to attorney generals along with with the Australian Federal Police, which has already happened, and immigration as a separate department. Other agencies, the Australian Tax Office has an unhealthy relationship with many large corporations. The regulator, ASIC, has also been 
criticised for excessive secrecy and a number of questionable practices. So defence has some pretty good company in, in all of that domain. So what needs to happen is some sort of major overhaul of the structure of government, of which defence is probably the most important part. And I, I just wonder whether this government has the willingness and the ability to do it. All right, now to our new segment, Questions Defence Refuses to Answer. People were quite interested in my first attempt. Now, this one is only two questions. They were about AUKUS. They were asked on June 23, and they were. Regarding the three billion dollars being transferred to US industry, will Australia have any visibility of how that money will be spent? Question two, was the three billion dollars requested by the US or has Australia offered that amount? As usual, nothing, no response, zero. In my opinion, perfectly straightforward questions that every Australian is entitled to know the answers to, but we don't get any response. Now, when it comes to the AUKUS nuclear-powered submarine task force, people have tried to reassure me that, look, it's all fine because the head of it, Vice Admiral Jonathan Mead, has a plan with charts. The charts show overlapping acquisitions and retirements of various capabilities, and because of the existence of a plan, we should all be fine. And I'm thinking, oh, a plan, like, the Schlieffen Plan. Who remembers that one? Who's a historian here? This was around the turn of last century, around 1900, when German military planners who had turned preparation for operations, preparation for war, basically, into a highly scientific mathematical formula. And they figured out in very great detail the number of troops that they needed, the number of railway wagons that were carrying supplies to back up the offensive, all of this sort of stuff, very tightly coordinated, very well organised. They figured that if people in the field followed the plan, they would defeat France within four weeks. Uh, question, how did that end up? Any answers? Well, I'll tell you. It resulted in the First World War. Four and a half years of carnage with 20 million dead, and other consequences such as the end of the Russian Empire, the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the end of the Ottoman Empire. The consequences of all of this are still being felt to this day. So just having a plan is obviously no guarantee of success. It's like my, my plan to reduce my weight to 80 kilos by Christmas. I can have plans and schematics and charts, but it's the ability to actually stick to something and deliver it that counts. Another local, well, how was the plan for a regionally superior attack class submarine? What happened to that? Six years of wasted effort and $3 billion. I'm now going to tell an anecdote about the AUKUS nuclear-powered submarine task force. Anecdotes by themselves are pretty meaningless, but I actually like to use them where appropriate to illustrate a broader point. The conversation that I'm about to relate occurred last November at the Submarine Institute of Australia conference in Canberra. Always very worthwhile, interesting presentations. But with conferences, often the real value comes from being able to meet people, mingle with them, talk to them during morning and afternoon tea, that sort of stuff. Presentations you can usually find online, but it's the face-to-face -face contacts that are valuable. Now, at that conference, people from Navy had either 
disappeared, scurried back to the safety of the R1 and R2 officers or had sort of gone into defensive huddles and wouldn't engage with random journalists like me. But but I did manage to have a word with some people from DFAT, that, that part of the task force that's concerned mainly with nuclear non-proliferation issues, and, but that they're integral to it. And I struck up a conversation and almost immediately I raised the issue of nuclear-powered submarines powered by low-enriched uranium, the way that the French do it. And I got about halfway through my first sentence about LEU when they started laughing at me. And yeah, it did hurt my feelings. And when the laughter subsided, one of them turned to me and said, mate, you've got to realise we're on a mission. And that, that was kind of the end of the discussion. In other words, there's no fact or logic or anyone wanting to engage with me why a low enriched uranium solution wasn't appropriate for Australia or why there were practical difficulties. None of that. No, 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 no. Just just this practical, you know, we're, we're going to get this done. Stay out of our way. Don't bother us with any silly ideas or distractions. We know what we're doing. And a rather nasty little aside, I couldn't help but think that the particular person who made this comment to me was quite senior. Probably the only thing that they'd organised in their entire lives would have been a morning tea function when they were a third secretary at our embassy in Lima or something like that. Yet you have all of these people making decisions without any accountability. And I can tell you that it's developing a sort of a, a cult-like image. And, and that is, if you're not a member of the cult, and I'm not, then you're just frozen out of discussion. Same as I previously, I wasn't a member of the cult of the attack class submarine. Again, as I remind everyone, wow, that worked out so well, didn't it? Getting back to what's the main theme of politics, and now US politics. I previously talked about an obstacle to acquiring Virginia-class submarines in the form of US industrial capacity. In my view, they've got a long way to go before they will have sufficient excess capacity to be building submarines for, for Australia. But there's another part of the equation that's equally important, and that, of course, is the political element in all of this. I mentioned the Republican primaries coming up. At the moment, Donald Trump has a huge lead, an almost, you'd almost say unassailable lead. Things could still happen. He's been indicted. Even criminal charges and the prospect of more don't seem to have dented the enthusiasm of Republican Party members for him. So it's a reasonable bet that he will go to secure the Republican Party nomination and then we look at the matchup, presumably with Joe Biden, and you would have to say that Trump has a reasonable chance. Whether people like it or not, the US political system has certain vagaries, the electoral college system and many opinion polls uh, are showing either Biden with a slight lead or it being neck and neck. And the dynamics could improve in favour of, of Trump. Biden might have some particular problems. The US economy might suddenly go backwards. There could be some terrorism. So we, we don't know. But we could be faced quite realistically with the prospect of another Donald Trump presidency. Now, some people have tried to 
say to me, oh, Trump would be supportive of AUKUS because he likes Australia and he respects the fact that we spend 2% of GDP on defence. Well, I fundamentally disagree. I'm not a psychologist, but my observation of, of Donald Trump is that he senses out weakness. His business and political career shows that. I think that he, if he were briefed on the position that Australia has taken of handing over $3 billion to the US just for nothing, he would categorise us as losers. He would say, these people are so desperate to get their hands on these submarines, let's double the price, let's triple the price. He would see it as an opportunity to exploit the position of Australia. And again, we've so far made it clear, yes, take all of this money. In fact, we are sending out the signals that we are so desperate, we're going to do anything, agree to anything, like secondhand submarines rather than new ones and dispose of them here. So what are we going to do then? What will Vice Admiral Meade's task force do if in two years' time, under a Trump presidency, he says, okay, you Aussies, you obviously want these things so much, we'll sell them to you, but we're going to triple the price and the ones that you're getting, you thought that you were getting ones that were 10 to 15 years old. Well, for that money, I'm only prepared to sell you ones that are 20 years old. What are we going to do then? I mean, what's the plan B? What's the way out? Anyway, while people meditate on that, I, I just noticed that a sector adjacent to defence, component of defence is what's happening in space, the Australian space sector is going down the gurgler as the government has withdrawn $1.2 billion worth of funding from a thing called the National Space Mission for Earth Observation. Was going to be a program, a lot of enthusiasm for Australian industry chopped in June as a cost-cutting measure. Now, the Minister of Science, Ed Husick, nice enough guy, very intelligent, very well motivated. He's been very clear. He says it's all about budget savings, that you know, space is important to Australia, but we just can't afford everything. Here's my advice to Ed Husick. You go along and speak with your colleague Richard Miles and ask for some of the $3 billion going to US industry. When is it that people inside the ALP government are going to start connecting the dots about this money a gigantic amount of money that's just been given away to another country. This is so unprecedented that the US has had to introduce legislation to make the payment possible because, quite frankly, they've never before come across a country that is so idiotic as to want to hand over any amount of money, let alone $3 billion, as some kind of vague advanced payment. Now, I believe what's happening from the Australian point of view, I believe that the AUKUS fan club, the boosters of AUKUS, particularly in defence and a couple of other sections of the bureaucracy, their tactics are to shove as much money into the US as they possibly can to make it impossible for a future government to back out of the deal. They know that the current government, the current ministers are locked in, but they're thinking ahead to, you know, if there's some sort of reshuffle or, or whatever, and they're dealing with 
you know, finally people who are sceptical about all of this, what they want to be able to do, I believe, is basically say, oh, minister, no, we've, we've already invested so many billions of dollars in this, we can't possibly cancel out of it now. That would be just completely irresponsible. Anyway... So we'll see we'll see how that plays out. I'm going to, to conclude again on the political side of things by just pointing out we've talked about the US election, possible Donald Trump presidency. In Australia, I would say that the future of the Labour government is not guaranteed either. Okay, it's eighteen months until the next federal election party. The government is travelling quite comfortably in the polls. But let's remind ourselves that Labour only just got back into office with about 31% of the primary vote, about their lowest primary vote ever. In terms of actual numbers, it was 600,000 votes less than they received in 2019. And of course, it's the optional preferential system and I'm sure some tactical voting and things like that that got them over the line. But for a big chunk of the night, it actually looked like that there was there was going to be a hung parliament until there was a late and unexpectedly large swing in Western Australia, and that occurred because of the McGowan factor and COVID-19 and various other things. So what's going to happen next time? I really can't see, I mean, you never talk in Australia or politics about, you know, 100% certainties. I'm not ruling out the possibility of a coalition win, though I would regard that for a number of factors as extremely unlikely, extremely unlikely at this point in the political cycle. However, I can certainly see the possibility of a hung parliament where Labour will have more seats than the coalition, but that they will need to negotiate with a mixture of independents and Greens to be able to form a government. Now, again, I don't know but what's the government going to do if, as part of the negotiations, the independents, the Greens say, oh, look, we're really not sure about this August thing. We want a lot more detail. We want to know what we're getting for our money. And by the way, we're dead against the idea of these submarines being decommissioned in Australia. What happens then? The whole thing presumably starts to unravel. Either that or the government refuses to negotiate and just tries to muddle through in some sort of minority government, which is just a recipe for chaos and disaster. Anyway, folks, that's taken up a little bit more time than I anticipated. I did want to talk a bit more about Air 6500. I think we've run out of time. I'll just say that the rumours are that a decision on Air 6500 is quite close. I noticed that the Defence Strategic Review recommended an off-the-shelf solution, and that would seem to favour Northrop Grumman ahead of the other bidder, Lockheed Martin. If the decision hasn't been announced by the next podcast, I'll go into a lot more detail about that. Now, by the way, as an aside, I thought that was an outrageous interference of the DSR into an actual live competition. I thought the DSR was all about defining capabilities. Yes, we need this. No, we don't need that not to interfere in something that's underway and say, oh, it's our judgment that one is going to be unachievable and expensive and the other one, let, let's let's go for that. There are a number of uh, live issues on that whole air defence domain, but let's keep hold of that for next week. Thank you again for listening. Bye for now. 
That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefencereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.